And we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Study Compass. I'm your host, Quez. And boy, do I have an amazing guest for you today. His name is Justin Jacobson. You know him for his work as an entertainment and esports attorney, where he serves a variety of clients across the entertainment spectrum. He's also the author of The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming, and has long been sought after by many entities across esports. We're sitting with one of the industry's best and brightest, Justin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the kind words and intro. Absolutely, man. I always tell people, it's like my guests make it easy for me because I just have awesome guests. I would also like to add, just give a little clarity. I may also actually teach esports and video game business classes at a few universities. So definitely very much able to look at this from all different angles. That's exciting. I, I think we're going to, I think your perspective is one that's very unique. I know you've also written a lot for many publications, Esports Observer and ESPN as well, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm, I'm ready to dive in. You got a website filled, literally filled to the brim with, with written publications and all of which is very helpful. Justin, I want to start off by sharing with you this view that I have of esports in its current state. And I want you to tell me if it seems silly or if I might be onto something here. You focus a lot on uh, IP, and I've, I've actually consumed a good bit of content where you've been featured as a guest, and I know you dive into IP very often. And I think esports as an industry is suffering, I shouldn't say suffering, but it has a big problem where they don't own the IP. And I call it the neighbor's pie problem. Surely you've seen the cartoon where a, a pie gets baked, it's, and then the scent is traveling through, and then it picks up the cartoon character and it brings it over to the, to the neighbor's house or something of that sort. I think the cartoon character is probably is the esports orgs, the streaming services, the production companies, everyone who have effectively is trying to get a little slice of the pie that is wholeheartedly owned by game publishers. And for good reason too. These game publishers are the ones that have put in the efforts in making a 10,000 hour game that could be viewed by spectators that is challenging enough to have competitive presence and then also has infinite replayability in a way. So Seeing that we have this problem, to me, I don't know that a sustainable business can be built on top of, an, of a situation where everyone is depending on this one place, this one source to start bringing in income. And yes, sure, there's, there's the argument that there's media rights and merchandising and ticket sales and all the other stuff. And I know those things stuff too. Stuff you looked at in my book, right? <laughs> to be honest, I, I will be transparent. I failed to get the book. But it is on my Amazon order, so I'm just I'm waiting to receive it is all. But effectively, yes, these are what what it seems like is that esports is suffering in in a situation where they don't own any clear revenue sources, nothing that's driving their business and enabling them to stay and participate in the things that they care about. And we've seen this evidence recently over the Apex Legend group stage where major brands were just leaving because I don't think that the, even they are saying that this makes sense for us to stay here. Um, so what do you think about my assessment so far? What like this thing that I'm calling the neighbor's pie problem? Is that real? Is, is that evidenced in your view? Have you made similar observations? I think that since the game developers, as you mentioned, own the game, they own all the rights to it and all the uses of it. They have a lot of power. But I do think, as you see from the more successful esports versus the ones that maybe aren't doing as well, they all have different approaches and different ways that they engage with. So I think ultimately the fact, obviously, 
nobody owns football or baseball or hockey. And that's always the analogy that's used. But is there really much competition outside of the major four leagues in sports? I think there was just an article that the XFL and the USFL are merging or something. And it's, so what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Great. If anything, that's less opportunity for you went from two leagues of 30 teams and now one league of 30 teams. That's that doesn't seem to be progress. I think ultimately the way it's structured is interesting, but for the other parties and the orgs in particular, you are almost building a brand. I think where I'm coming from the more traditional entertainment world saw a lot of similarities looking at the esports organization as almost as a record label where the same 100 Thieves, Phase Clan, Optic, Team Liquid, some of the G2, et cetera, they're almost like I'm down with Rockefeller or I'm down with Cash Money. And it's they're signing all of these other extensions of them, all these other artists that are like repping them, but also repping themselves. And it's the same way you're making content and you're trying to create this whole flow the same way an artist might do for a record. And as a result, you're trying to capitalize on this coolness fact. Obviously, the record label has the ability to sell records and downloads and streams, but anyone who's ever looked at the news can tell you that it's not the same business that it was, that record labels don't really make money off selling records or selling music, really. It's really the music as the vehicle for the celebritum. It's, if you don't have music, you can't do a concert. If you don't have music, you can't be in a commercial. If you're not like a musician who's putting out music, you're maybe not as interesting for a brand or people aren't like resonating with you if you're just a guy you know so it's like it's more of a vehicle the same way gaming or content creation is and you're using almost the or as you know this gateway to create stuff and i think some teams have done things right we've seen you know organizations like 100 thieves selling really successful merchandise obviously phase clan selling real where it's like you're creating a lifestyle thing and i think that's more of the general angle. I think the biggest problem, and maybe it's because of the way the games are structured, is that trying to build the Yankees and the Red Sox and go to war over the best quote-unquote players doesn't necessarily work in eSports. Because the video game is a great equalizer, anything can happen. They always say on any given Sunday, you can win or you can lose. But in eSports, in the game, it's even more like Whereas on football or basketball, if you have the strongest, fastest team together, you're probably going to win more often than not. But on esports, that's really not necessarily the case. Yeah, there's kids that are much better, but similar to pro leagues, the difference between the top is so negligible. It's all about execution and mental stability and your finger not slipping a little, like such small minutia, such small details that. If you're focused on winning or losing, it's really not the way to do it because winning or losing is so far out of your control. Whereas obviously we've seen the big three. You put Ray, Ray Allen, Kevin Durant, and Paul Pierce with Ron and Rondo on a team and they just destroyed the league. It's just like you can only have five people in the court and if all of them are all-stars, it, it's going to be hard. Probably have a good chance of winning. And we've seen that in sport throughout history. Obviously you've seen teams come together and et cetera. But overall, there's much more differentiating. But in esports, where you, I think that was a lot of the problem with it, is you're spending all this money on trying to like build these competitive winning teams when the money ball approach that the Oakland A's took is probably the way to do it. 
And you've seen, I think, Evil Geniuses was really successful with it. And you've seen some organizations look at that as a model where it's, we don't need to try to spend as much as we can to get the best quote unquote player that everyone thinks is the best. We can, I've been told from scouts and analysts that they're just certain categories, certain metrics that if you look at them, players, if they hit high enough in those, like they can be taught to other things. They can be brought up and those other things that are necessary can be developed over time and coached. So it's, if you can identify these things and understand how to coach the other things, you can create a much more sustainable, competitive ecosystem. But I don't think you could really be successful if that's all you're focused on, because you mentioned that is too tied to the developer. If all of a sudden League of Legends, hey, we're done, we're going to develop League of Legends 2, there's no more competitions for three years. What's what going to happen then? Yeah. It's, hey, we don't have the resources to run League of Legends and build League of Legends 2, so we're going to shut this down for two years. Sorry. <laughs> Go to Valorant if you can. You shared quite a lot there and several things that I think we'll get into across the, the span of our conversation. One in particular about record labels, I actually have a, I have a bit of personal feelings about how I think that much of the music industry is very nebulous and sometimes it's very difficult to, to determine where, like where things are coming from what, if I sampled this artist and they got to get paid a percentage, what does that percentage look like? And then, oh, I got to also deal with the distributor. That's a whole nother behemoth, I think, that we could maybe explore a little bit. But in particular, in reference to esports, we talk about Riot saying, hey, let's just pretend they decide we're going to make League of Legends 2 exactly like that. What happens to the rest of the esports orgs? And this is what I mean about that neighbor's pies. I think the esports orgs, for the most part, need to make their own pie. What that pie is, I'm not totally sure, because I think it actually introduces an additional dilemma, which is... Over the last weekend, we had the World Series of Warzone happen. And there was an interesting metric that came out over the weekend. And I uh, don't have it on me right now, but I did see it on Twitter. And it was that there was, over the course of the weekend, over 300,000 concurrent viewers watching that tournament. Whereas the, the only esports competition that had more viewers than that was the Call of Duty Majors, like about three or four months ago. And it got me thinking. And, and this is what's going to, I think, open up this next part is what's more valuable, the creator or the esports org? Because it seems like to me, for most brands, for most, and I'm saying brands outside of even gaming, let's just want to jump into to energy drinks or, or clothing or whatever. Like brands are probably looking at someone like Mr. Beast, which maybe he's, he's probably an outlier really, but content creators in general and saying, I think I can probably get more bang for my buck working with this one person instead of this, again, kind of nebulous entity that happens to sign content creators, happens to sign professional gamers and maybe get some turnaround there. I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. What do you think is more powerful? Do you think the esports org in there, as they continue to form their brand, that continue to form a presence, is that just as valuable as a content creator? Or do you think that they depend on who they sign in order to have some body to who they are? I think that's a loaded question because Sorry. obviously I'm definitely much more, do a lot more work on the talent side. So I understand and see the value in it. And I, but I think we'll start with the devil's advocate side of it, that the organizations sign these players and creators and they obligate them to these deliverables, whether it's sponsorship posts on behalf of the sponsor. So if you're sponsoring a team, 
you're in theory getting access and having paperwork and rights to do things with all the players. So that's why you've seen some of the largest companies working with some of the orgs. Even if the campaign is necessarily focused on one particular player, by going through the org, you just amplify that. Even if you're also working with that player, Oakley and Optic also working with Scum, where it's like they have something with him and there's probably contracts and money built in just for him to do stuff. But by getting the rest of the team, you get just, you know, millions of more impressions more ability it just becomes a greater thing. So I think ultimately, obviously the price tag is a little bit different, but for a lot of these brands, it makes more sense. And it's another thing I've learned is that they'd rather spend for something way more substantial than just be like, okay, they've already spent a hundred thousand dollars on something than like 10, $10,000 things. I don't necessarily know if that's the right way to do things, but in conversations with people at Grey Goose and like mega companies, that's their thought process, that they want to be involved in something on a way bigger scale if they're going to be involved in anything. That like, so again, being able to leverage hundreds of millions of views versus 10 million views, that might be different. Then again, I think that it also comes down to each brand is different. Each product category is different. You know, what a Geico or State Farm or MasterCard needs might be different than a PC or a headset company or a keyboard company. We're like, talk with custom controller companies where it's all about costs where they just have to sell controllers. Like if they're not selling controllers, then it doesn't matter. So to them, it's only about that conversion rate. And then other brands are like, we're doing marketing because we have to do marketing. Like do Pepsi and Coca-Cola need to ever, like do you ever need to spend money if you're Pepsi or Coca-Cola or do you just conduct business as usual and you're pretty much going to have your business as usual? It's more of this thing that you do because this is how you stay around. This is how you stay in prep. You're making this money, so it's just a way to stay around. Now, you you also started talking a bit about marketing and and relevance. And and again, I apologize if I'm uh, loading up on questions here, but uh, I, I wrote down so many that I was just I was very eager to get your perspective. I'll, I'll touch on one thing first regarding as we're still on the topic of sponsorship. And largely, a lot of this is almost like an advertisement in a way is, hey, I have this particular personality. They love Grey Goose and you should drink it too because you love that personality. Cool. Hmm. Devin Nash once made a video describing some of the dilemmas of in advertising in esports. And maybe that can extend a, bit, a bit further even to gaming overall, meaning that gaming is no longer... To, to simply call someone a gamer is just as general as calling them a sports fan. Um, because there's just so many archetypes that are encompassed under a gamer these days. And similarly, I think in esports, there are many types of viewers and that there's a big ad challenge in trying to get the appropriate ad in front of the targeted user. Do you think that some of these sponsors are, are starting to wake up to that? That, ah oh man, if I'm working with Optic and maybe 50% of their audience is interested in men's soap like that. Maybe that's a good turnaround, but perhaps not if it was around makeup. Female soap. Right. If it was like a female soap product. Exactly. Like, like how effective would that be effective becomes a question, at least a good question worth considering, especially if you don't. They have the Botez sisters. So those are really powerful 
content creators in the space. So again, it's if let's just say Dove wants to come with a new female skincare product or soap scent to do something with them where they do some cool stuff where they're getting ready to do their online chess and they get ready with Dove and their hand slips because it's extra softer than it used to be. <laughs> And they have to adjust their setting. Like, that's happy you left. That's a cute, funny thing. And it's but like, it's but it's smart. I like that. Where they just keep touching the 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 mouse and it just keeps slipping. It's like, oh, my hands are so soft from that dove. And that's you too. Boom. Optic gaming loves soap. So it's just it, it all has to make sense. And I think ultimately brands are maybe any bit more strategic and deliberate with where they're doing. I don't think it's just like, oh, we need esports. So let's just spend money to sponsor three teams, maybe the way BMW might have done it. With, oh, these are four big teams. They, guys like cars, they have a lot of guys, and let's just throw money. We're now maybe saying, okay, let's pick the two or three teams where they have an iRacing team or they have a NASCAR or a Formula One co-owner or someone signed as a streamer. Now you're maybe being a little bit more deliberate and it, the messagery makes more sense. So I think that might be the trend, but I think ultimately there's still a lot of people making a lot of money off of this. And I don't think influencer marketing using gamers, streamers, or teams is going to go anywhere. I think it just becomes more evolved the same way metrics become more evolved that just because you have followers, that's a good step. But then we look at engagement rate and average views and what your average concurrent viewers are. And it's the more you look into the numbers, the more you really understand it. And I think that's the trend with sponsors and brands getting involved where they're more deliberate and strategic because they know better and they maybe now understand the space better than they did when they initially went in it. I think that's part of any learning in any space. I think to be fair, especially coming 2018, 2019, so much talk around esports, so much excitement, this emerging area, project, you know, new zoos talking about it's projected to hit $260 billion. Right. Don't you want a piece of that? trillion dollars. Yeah, exactly. So, so and to your point, brands maybe back then were not doing their homework as much. Perhaps that's a fair Maybe it isn't, maybe it is or is not a fair statement to make, but I think they're definitely they didn't doing... know what the homework was. They didn't necessarily know what the return was supposed to be or what they were going to get. It's, yeah, if you get 10, 20 billion views on a campaign, that's beneficial. But if it doesn't get to one sale, is that beneficial? It's up to them to decide, right? You, you don't know until... That's real. That's real. Sorry, go ahead. No, I thought that, yeah, like, I think that's a great point. Where you don't know until it's exactly. you got to try it. Yeah, so so we can't be too mean to the brands. They didn't, to be fair to anybody, right? Like you simply do not know what you don't know until you're in it. And then once you're in it, perhaps we can do our, our homework a bit more. And I like what you, I like your word choice about evolving because I agree with you. I don't think any of this stuff goes away. I think it only gets more, like way more, I can't even just say targeted, but more precise perhaps. Yeah, strategic. A bit, you know a exactly lot more strategic. you want, the demographic you want, what your goal is. Well, your ROI is, and you can find someone that fits it. Yep. That's the truth. And they're out there. They're, I, I think this is becoming one of the greatest skill sets. I actually talked about it a lot because I worked in sales for a while, and I made the argument that individuals who know how to uh, demonstrate a, maybe a product or or just educate on something in this format in front of a camera, that skill set is going to be very valuable. And I think for brands in particular, since there's so many eyes you know, flocking to Twitch, to YouTube, this, the kick, all the major platforms, 
that that attention is definitely worth something. I want to kick it back real quick to towards esports, and I read this awesome article. It's probably more of an essay from a gentleman who used to work at Riot, and supposedly it's a bunch of kind of insider accounts and things of that sort. But he made an example about, or I should say an example. He discussed the potential of whether or not publishers view esports as a loss leader. And uh, for our audience who maybe isn't aware of what that might mean, I, I, he gave an example, and I'll, I'll share it here, which is Costco, one of the best places in the world. I love Costco. They have a loss leader, and that is their rotisserie chicken. It is $5. It has never gone up. I think it's only gone up once in the 2008 recession. And that is like their poster boy in a way. That's what's going to bring people into the store. And then once they're in the store, that's where they're actually spending money. So Costco is okay with losing money because they're going to get it somewhere else. That's a lost leader. A lot of people, or this gentleman at least, is making the argument that game publishers may be looking at esports as a lost leader, but that none of this has been verifiable because I don't, as far as I'm aware, that data is not public about whether or not whether or not a particular esports is bringing in new prospective players and then by virtue, uh, potential buyers for the game or an in-game asset, i.e. somewhere where they can monetize. In your personal view, given your time in the industry so far, how valid do you think that statement is? Do you think that publishers may be looking at esports as a loss leader? I think initially, if you think about a marketing and promotional expense as almost a loss leader cost, where it's like you're spending money, where like you might not necessarily get a tangible return, but you're spending money because you need to promote yourself, right? That goes back to the thing about the Pepsi and the Coke, where it's not like you're going to all of a sudden get 30% more market share and, you know, if you're Coke and Pepsi, it's because you have the best commercial ever. That's not what's going to happen. More likely, there's going to be a study that comes out that says Coke is healthier than Pepsi and it decreases cancer by 10%. And that's going to change it more than a marketing campaign. I think if you look at loss leader concept as marketing and promotions, I think the, the concept of the esports competitive gaming, that's probably the way they look at it most of the way. Where this is a way to, as you said earlier, there's different gamers. There's the hardcore gamers and the casual gamers. This is the way to almost placate and get involved and really double down on the hardcore people, the people that love the game so much that not only they want to play, but they want to watch other people play it. They want to watch other super skilled people play it when they maybe want to attend events or they want to root for players that they like or players that play the champion that they play or whatever it is, whatever creates your rooting interest. So I think that it's meant as a way to almost double down and monetize them. And that with the in-game bundles where I think Valorant, bundles and League of Legends, some of these are making millions of dollars for the teams. CSGO stickers making millions of dollars for these teams where like this, again, it's just a cosmetic. It does, it's just a thing to put in the game. And you just see that as a way to almost monetize those people. So it's in theory, it's marketing and promotion because you're spending money creating this event, creating this ecosystem, running it putting bandwidth towards promoting it on your website, et cetera. But it also is generating you revenue through the money. So it, I don't think it's completely like a bath where the example of Costco where it's, yeah, we're spending $5 on a chicken that costs us eight, 
But when you leave from Costco, you're getting $150 worth of toilet paper and strawberry. Like, it's funny. I, was, I had Costco chicken for lunch today. Nice. You know, my wife, I was explaining it to her. Yeah, this is the lost leader that like you go in there, but you leave with 300 rolls of toilet paper and more cashew nuts than you'll ever need to eat in a lifetime. So you're spending $30 on peanuts and toilet paper and you're getting this $5 chicken. So it's you end up spending $12 on the chicken if you average all the items. Yeah. Not to mention gas because you got to get gas before you head out, right? There's, yeah, shout out to Costco, man. I think they figured out the play for sure. But this brings up another point regarding the publisher relations and and really publisher involvement. Because as we've seen, not all publishers are getting involved in esports. Nintendo, I think, is perhaps one of the more distant. EA is also a bit distant in a way. I I believe that they've been... And again, I don't yeah, know I mean, this for a the fact. The Jacksonville thing really was problematic for them. The Madden shooting really was a problem. And the thing with the Nintendo is that up until 2018, esports was outlawed in Japan. Up until they changed the laws, if this can't be part of our business, why would it be part of our business? That that was the interesting comment that had been made by one of the one of the original founders of Super Smash Bros. and or Melee or all the other variants that have been out. But he made the argument that said. Why would we tailor our games to 1% of this audience, the hardcore gamers, as we talked about earlier, when the reality is that we want to sell this game to the other 99%? So does involvement in esports align with the interest of the publisher is, I think, another question worth asking is esports is really catering, and, and I would even go as far as saying is culturally necessary in a way for publishers to get involved. That's my own personal opinion. Now, I can see why it may not make sense for them from their financial perspective. And I think that's the question that people are starting to ask, which is, how do we align interest? And that, that's a bit about where I think we are today. I don't know if you have a comment that you want to make back to that. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really tough question because it does make sense. Like when you have these games, like you said, the 10,000 hour games, the ones that people are obsessed with, the people that are obsessed with it, this is like part of what they do. Right. Friday night is we're going to load up, we're going to go to the local land center, I'm going to play League of Legends for three hours. And I remember I, I was a big StarCraft and StarCraft two guy like during high school and then during law school. I'm not going to say that we didn't hang out in my basement on a Friday night and play StarCraft, but we probably did hang out in my basement and play StarCraft real, on Friday man. night. Just real. So it's, this is part of it. And I think, People that really love it love to see high-level com- competition. I think that's why people that are into sports love to see the professional level. And, again, it's figuring out where the benefit is. And as you mentioned before, different developers have different approaches. You have ones like Riot and Activision Blizzard who are all really up in there. Valve, who's really has some, but it's like they're in the middle. And then you have other ones like Nintendo and EA who are just like, we're not interested. This is not what we want. Sometimes you might actively stop things from happening if we have to. So it's it really comes down to it. But I don't know if it's really detrimental other than, as you said, the amount of money you might spend for the return you might get. Which to me seems like... But then if is, it's marketing and promotions, then it doesn't matter, right? It's just... It's, this is just, as you said, catering to your super hardcore fan maybe you're going to build this fandom and generational excitement that you want. But I think because titles change and preference of people change so much, I think you want to build 
a generation of people that just enjoy watching high level games that they like playing and this is a normal thing and not necessarily like we need League of Legends or Valorant or Street Fighter. I think it's almost like you need the widget of the game to grow where it's not like, what do you mean you're watching people playing video games? So of course I'm watching people playing this new cool game that like I want to get better at. I see it even myself like I'm a big Marvel Snap fan. That's my like game that I play a lot. It's just like, yeah. I follow creators. I watch YouTube. I follow websites. Like I, I try to figure it out. And that is what the super hardcore people of a game are like. So um, there might be a new game that comes out and it changes, but the people that are into that stuff is always going to find that game and gravitate towards it and find that community and find the other enthusiasts of the game. So I think the more it becomes like the norm or that it would have been cool if I would have knowing what other kids other than me and my three friends that played StarCraft, and then we could have had eight people four on four playing each other than just us against four random people. But nowadays, it's different. I think that's my philosophy on where this goes. I really value what you say because is especially what you say about the widget, like that's almost what's needed more. is not so much because attention moves so quickly in this space where, you know, I think games like League of Legends, StarCraft even, they are outliers in a way. E even in the space of esports, Go in particular, outliers, where to have lasted this long and still be relevant is of by no e is not an easy feat in, in the slightest. It's got me thinking, perhaps what's really important is the persona of an esports fan and how we create an experience for them to watch not just this one esports that they happen to be maybe is the thing that got them into the space but how do we also get them involved into maybe other emerging esports just hey we noticed that you watch a lot of league of legends but we've also based on your youtube view history that you like soccer so we're going to recommend rocket league or, or fifa or 2k or something is getting that participant to immerse themselves more into all that has to be offered rather than just this one tiny spectrum of this one mini discipline of this umbrella of esports. That's brilliant. We were talking a bit earlier about this challenge as a business entity. I want to go back to the esports org. They have a challenge of trying to earn more in profit than what they are spending. And earlier we also described what is in their own pie? What could that look like? I have a theory that something that would work is esports orgs meets Disney parks. What do I mean by that? Individuals end up buying a venue. So now they, ha they have ownership of the venue rather than renting out the venue. They have a commerce center, a training facility, a hotels like directly on that campus for other participants to come in, almost like academies. That's pretty or, much what Gen G did. Kind of what Gen G is doing. Yeah. There's another French team. I forget Car Carmine Corp, I think is their name. And that they are now renovating a park out there in, in France. And I think things of that capacity, I think that there's something interesting there because a lot of esports fans are, there's one dimension by which they can interact with their team, which is usually through some kind of social media format. And I would just say at its core is probably a chat interface, assuming they're watching something and then they're trying to chat over here on the right hand side. And there's a lot, there's a lot to be desired, I think, in that interaction. So I'm curious to hear from your from your point of view. Do you think that 
if esports were was to get a second wind, let's just say that VC sponsorship, we're all interested in in saying, okay, like, let how could we do esports right this time around? What do you think about taking a position as having their own campus, their own facilities, as opposed to this kind of we'll just try to fit in where where we can? I I look at Optic Gaming and their relationship with the Arlington esports facility out there which is like a super cool place, by the way. If you guys have never been, please check it out. Super cool place. Uh, but I, I don't think they own, as far as I'm aware, they do not own that venue. It's a, there's a potential for monetization for Optic, given their presence all over Dallas and Frisco. What do you think? Yeah, you definitely have seen you know, organizations, as I mentioned, Gen G and 100 Thieves and some others creating, Team Liquid also creating these training facilities, these event spaces, these kind of like, again, I think Gen G's headquarters in, South Korea, there's like a whole player's lounge that has framed jerseys and the trophies and yeah, almost creating these headquarters where fans can come and stay and engage and it has like a food court and cafe and gaming centers. And I've been to Complexities Gaming Facility by in Dallas. And again, same thing. It has a really cool main room with a bar and and there's a couple conference rooms and another back kind of kitchen area. And it's just, they do events there. They practice this grant. So it's, these things are a part of it. And I think your, I think your point of trying to build your own pies is the way to do it. Like we said, merchandise is obviously always an easy one. And we've seen that been successful. But I think some G2 and some others have actually launched record labels. And I think that's ingenious. I think you actually signing artists or developing your own. And then being able to use that music in all your videos, all your content you get authorized and make money on that back end. It's all this residual royalty money. Plus, you now have another medium to develop and to sponsor. And realistically, if you have these videos that are getting hundreds of millions of views, like that's to really add up on the back end for streaming. Especially, I know of content companies that try to like license background music and music used for videos and all these libraries to be able to be that for your own content creators, I think is really valuable, especially if it again, feeds you on the residual, you on the back end. And if you put out original music and it does well, like you just built another vertical. So then you can start doing gaming and music festivals and merging the two and really being this more hybrid entertainment company that I think is what I would do if I was operating a team. And I think the way that you've seen the most success happen, it's not necessarily being the New York Yankees, 26 time world series champions. It's being the face clans and hundred thieves that have all Snoop Dogg rocking your chain at the Super Bowl halftime show. People Without talking trading. about the whole stock market thing, the cultural significance of that, the social capital, the, that kind of thing, like LeBron James talking about the Sports Illustrated cover on Jimmy Kimmel, these cultural phenomenal things is so it's, I think it's all part of it. And the growing pains of a new industry ran by pretty inexperienced business people. Like if you look at the people that founded all the teams that got all these millions of dollars, they were just former this players or former that no disrespect to any of them that they, they made millions of dollars and they were there first and they saw something that other people didn't and they put their grind into it. But again, you're not talking about polished CEOs that have went, got their MBA and they got their CPA and then spent 20 years in corporate America and then is running a company valued at $100 million. 
that's not who was running these things. That's right. right. Didn't nature always say that he used to work at McDonald's and he became like a pro gamer. It's again, no disrespect. His company is valued at 400 million. And I certainly don't have a company valued at 400 million. But the point is, is that there's a difference between having the understanding and way to operate a business and operate a business versus whatever those situations might have been. Right. I do try to be graceful with with those owners. Matthew Hagen, I'm a big fan of Hex. I, yeah, I just think Steve at Team Liquid and Noah and Immortal. Yep. Like these guys. Met, I met Steve as well. Sharp guy, man. And but to your point, right? It's like a, a lot of people got this massive come up almost out of nowhere. I shouldn't say out of nowhere. There was a lot of work involved, but it was and, really and, quick. and no experience. Like no way to steer the ship or really even know how to steer the ship. What the fuck kind yeah, of ship is How do you run a hundred million dollar company that has all these international, all these dealing with multi fortune 500 company. This is like a real thing. This is no longer us playing League of Legends and signing the good players. That's right. And paying for their hotels and stuff. This is a different level of ball game. And, but then again, with FaZe, some of the people, he used to be the former president of EMI Records. So it's like, even high-profile people might not necessarily know how to operate it successfully. So I think it's like you have to find the right people. It's, it always comes down to talent. And there's a reason the Clive Davises and the Jimmy Iveens and all these other people that go down in history is who they are, are who they are. Because it takes a certain knowledge and grind and foresight and professionalism and pizzazz and all these other – this whole formula – to make it happen. It's not just one or the other. So I don't right. think it's anyone's fault. I just think that it's evolving and it's growing and it's just understanding when it evolves to a level when you need really highly sophisticated people around you, people that can create infrastructure, people that could hone down. Like you probably shouldn't spend hundreds, whatever, tens of millions of dollars a month, building an energy you know. drink in a market that's dominated by Red Bull, Monster, Rockstar, companies that make hundreds of millions of dollars. It's just, there are certain battles you pick. You're not going to make a Coca, you're not going to make a cola brand to go against Pepsi Coke and, and Pepsi. Coca-Cola. Yeah. It's probably going to be a really uphill battle. Yeah. Maybe you can make a melon soda that like you're fighting against Mellow Yellow or something, even though that's Coke. It's not a cola brand going against Coke, right? Is RC Cola like the, I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you what the third is. For me, it's not even a debate between Coca-Cola and Pepsi. I'm a, and ho- hopefully you don't hate me for this, but I'm a big Coca-Cola guy. I think I'm going Coca-Cola before I go Pepsi. Yes, so, I uh, definitely go Coke over Pepsi as well. boy, Hell yeah. <laughs> we talked about 100 Thieves, and I, I want to stay on them for a second here. I was watching in a one of their podcast sessions where it was him, it was uh, Nate Shot, John Robinson, and then two other gentlemen who are focused on the business operation. And one of the things that I got as insight was from 2018 onward, a lot of the discussion or at least the the energy of the space at that time was grow. Don't worry so much about how much money is spending. Just focus on capturing as much attention, sign the best players, look really good as you're doing it and win competitions. That is going to be way more important than whatever challenge we run into in two or three, four years, i.e. where we are right now. And I think they... Obviously, they sharpened up. They, yeah, but they're 
did they but know? Did, did that work? Did spending all that money make them win constantly? They did win one Valorant championship, and then that was it, right? I don't think they've won anything else. Wait, uh, LA Thieves might have done something. But, yeah. So it's got me thinking, right? They started assessing their game plan. And what do they have now? Now they got four products. So they got Juvie, that energy drink that we, we talked about. They got High Ground, that the co-ownership they have there. Project X, a game development company. And then what I would consider their fourth, their merchandise, lifestyle apparel. Now, I still see a problem here, which is even if all four of those businesses are in the green and they're making money, if all of that profit is just going to be dumped into the belly of the beast that is esports, we still don't have a sustainable industry because the thing that you actually care about, you have to have the headache of dealing with all these other nuances that come with being in beverage, being in hardware, being in, in lifestyle, all the headaches that come with that just to take the profits and then dump it over here. That's not going to make you any returns. Maybe, maybe you get bragging rights. Maybe you win a championship. Even if you did win that championship, what are you taking as an esports org? Five, 10%? The rest is being split up amongst the competitors anyway. This to me, this approach to me still doesn't even seem like the right way. Hence why I brought up that theory about the campus, perhaps getting more. These guys are in LA. That's a bustling city with a lot of attention on esports. I would say it's probably the, the biggest esports market in the United States right now. So what are your thoughts there? Are they at least trying to step into the, dire into the right direction or do they still have some ways to go? I mean, I love the idea of having the peripheral company. I think it makes a lot of sense, especially if you have this high-end custom keyboard where you can do collaborations with your big creators, where you can do cool branded stuff, where you can do what they were doing, where you have a capsule collection that's on apparel and keyboard thing, where it's like you can buy a cool hoodie and a hat that matches your keyboard keycap collection. Or, and you could do it with a cool streetwear artist or an anime product or a Naruto. Like, you could do these unique things. Like, we see Team Liquid in Marvel. We saw Face Clan in Mickey in Disney. Like, these are blue chip licensing opportunities. Obviously, 100 Thieves and Gucci. These are the kind of things that I think are the most successful, do the most impact, and really make you the most money because... The game development company, that's a hit or miss thing. You could burn a ton of money on developing a game and it could be a smash hit or it could be a flop. And if it's a flop, then you blew, then and it's game over. But if it's a smash hit, that now it's, you're getting all your streamers to do it. You're, you're really pushing it and it's a great game. If you have Valkyrie and Courage and Nate and a bunch of other people playing it and really pushing it up on like, other people are going to try it. The ninjas at Tim the Tat, like, people are going to try it. People are going to get it. And if they like it the same way Among Us came out of nowhere and Fall Guy, it was just, like, people trying it. Maybe the initial people got paid to try it, but it doesn't matter if a game is, as they call it, sticky and people like it and it's fun and you want to keep it, like, it could catch on. We so saw I that happen. when you're starting to look Go at ahead, those sorry. verticals, that's starting to be, like, yeah, that's potentially a good business strategy where it's, or not. But if then if you're throwing all the money because you're going to, Tying the top jungler and you got to keep up with the Joneses the way the Red Sox and Yankees spend money on the top pitcher every single year. Like it, it doesn't work when I think if you look at any of these people's opinions, like sports teams don't really make money yearly. If you look at their books, they're not making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. 
like their value of the franchise might be worth billions of dollars, but it's, I don't think it's necessarily tied to like their profits and loss statements as more of the scarcity of the property versus what it means for the cultural society kind of thing. And I was going to say, in, ter- in terms of your example with the Red Sox and the Yankees trying to sign the most expensive pitcher every year, perhaps as it pertains to esports, the more ideal approach would be that of the Oakland A's, right? And just let's take that money ball approach, see what we can find more. I mean, it doesn't even work for, for the Yankees. When you see, wait, didn't the Mets spend a zillion dollars on all these players and they just ended up throwing them all away at the trade, like Justin Verlander, like $93 million or something like just down even the gutter. If you buy the best players, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're going to get champions. Doesn't mean they're going to mesh well with your team. Doesn't mean they're going to like your coach. Yeah. There's a lot to consider there. So this has been pretty cool. I, I have some two or three more points. I know we're approaching the hour. Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, man. No rush. Hell yeah. So perhaps from my commentary so far, you may agree with this statement or you may say that it's accurate that I believe that it, this is the case. And it is that the business of esports is backwards. Everyone is trying to eat from someone else's pie, which is probably true for all of entertainment. Do you see Web3 technologies disrupting the nebulous nature of entertainment? Web3 is interesting. I guess that in theory, the whole entertainment business percentages and other people's work, selling music, selling movies, actors, sports, other people hitting the baseball, et cetera. But it's also the packaging and the bringing it out to the masses. If you weren't creating all the lights and the smoke and the great sound effects and whatever, would a concert or a live show be what it is? Or would it just be someone standing with a microphone and a guitar? Or is what makes it so awesome the fact that you have pyrotechnics and lights and a really cool keyboard behind it that has a cool laser light show. Like that's what entertainment world is beyond the basis of it. I think that where you get into the web three and how blockchain technology comes involved, I think we already started to see how it started to change esports a little. You started to see Axie Infinity starting to be a title. You started to see some esports organizations creating divisions or running their own gaming guilds, tournaments. So you're starting to see its own ecosystem develop around these titles. And because the teams and the competitors can actually own the assets and have a bit more say over that formula, it makes it a little bit more immersive. But I, I think ultimately what it comes down to is the game has to be a great enough game that It doesn't matter if it has that or not, right? I think that's the thing that I've learned from people. It's like, we don't want to build a game to integrate that into it. We want to build a great game, and that's just like a part of it, right? I think like just someone who I'm a really big NBA 2K guy, the whole account sharing and people grinding badges for you and like all this stuff happening on Twitter and DMs and needing middlemen and dude, the middlemen disappearing with the money and like, Like all this random stuff that I see on Twitter and I'm just like, like, why are you spending a thousand dollars to have some dude grind your center badges and whatever? If there was this way to do this all legitimate and it was all done properly and I could sell my seven foot center from my account to your account and the money goes in and out and it's just done, like it makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
or renting yeah. it out even. Right? Well, yeah, like, exactly. Uh, if you just want, again, I'm very big in the NBA 2K world where like they have all these grassroots leagues where, you know, guys at night and whoever else form teams and they play each other in formal leagues and organize overnight tournaments and all of this stuff. And it's, you get your five, I get my five, we squat up and the winner goes on. And at the end, we spend whatever it is, $100 a team at the end. The winning team gets this and prize pool. And it's, oh, the player's like, oh, we need a center for tonight. But oh, who has a center? So to spend $20 to rent a center to win $1,000, that's probably a good investment. Probably worthwhile, yeah. Especially if you're, so it's, there's definitely that as an angle. And I don't know how much it really changes esports, except just adds more avenues, more titles, more potential widgets, which is always good, right? It, it, and then the added ownership aspect just gives you a bit more recourse. It maybe makes it a bit more like you're going to make money off of it. But as we see, Axie Infinity and all this Web3 crypto NFT stuff, like it didn't do as good as everyone was anticipating it to do. Right. Well, I, th I think a large part of that is it was just fueled so heavily by speculation probably over the course of the last two years. And that was more of the pinnacle interest for participants, which was if I just put $5 into this, surely by tomorrow I'll be $5,000 richer because NFTs, right? And I, I think that's- I love that's, the project. I love yeah. the art. I know. I love the community. I love the, yeah, community. the community and the art really speaks to me. Just it's part of me. It's part of my identity. Yeah, exactly. All that bullshit. However, there is still really interesting use cases that have come as a result. Speaking back to ALGS, did you know that the team that, that placed third in that competition was a community owned organization, Blackhand? And that is a team that was formed and decided on by uh, a group of individuals, participants in that organization that signed, that team went off and competed. And now in their treasury, they have earned their, their income. And that, that was a decentralized organization. Same with in Dota 2, at the international, there will be Nouns Esports. And they will also be competing. They are a decentralized organization competing in esports at the highest level next to some of the biggest names in, in the industry. So I think there's a lot of interesting nuance that comes as a result of, and, and this is a bit different because it pertains a bit more to governance, I think, like decision-making rather than just like digital ownership. Although even in games, I, I also think that's something uh, worthwhile to explore. And we see big personalities like Dr. Disrespect with Dead Drop and what he's doing over there. The folks over at Stardust who are doing all of the custodial wallets, making it a very seamless experience. I think what I appreciate the most is that they're being transparent with their audience about what it is that's in front of them. So that way that there's no, there's no instances of omitting information and then gamers suddenly being like, hey, NFT scam. No, which I think we, if you've you created a league, right? That was yeah. last week's NFT scam. There you go. Nice. Sharp. Exactly. And all in the spirit of if they don't know, it'll be okay. And, Dude, it's, we live in the age of the internet. People will take their time to find this kind of stuff. And they had an, I think they had a really great idea with awesome names, awesome big names, and completely fumbled the bucket all off of the decision of omitting information. But I do think that Web3 can do a lot for being transparent or creating transparency, 
whether that be in like payments, whether that be in who owns what, who has owned what, where things are, there, there's not, there's this removal of trust me. And that's one mantra that I think has stuck out to me during my time in Web3 and I continue to be a big advocate of it, which is don't trust, verify. And I quite like that. I quite stand by that. I, I want to quickly segue. So I was saying that the business of esports is backwards. And the reason that I say that is also because we are, a lot of esports orgs are looking to give. I want to give my content creators a chance to be 10 times bigger than they are. I want to give my professional competitors a chance to this and that. And as a result, the organization suffers. They don't make any money, right? So I'm curious to hear what you think about this. When you think back to prestigious organizations that people are willing to pay to be a part of, is there anything that immediately comes to your mind? Circa college. Fraternities, yeah. So I'm thinking, what do we, what, like, where do we go wrong? Is there such a time where esports orgs can take more of approach of being a fraternity where you owe me dues so that you can participate as part of this very prestigious organization that also has an academy, that also has trainers and all the professionals. And then the, what we say, my, my parents are Cuban. So we say, look, Mickey, look, mini, all of all the bells and whistles. I have all of that, but that's all included as part of your membership due that you owe once every three months, every six months, et cetera. What do you think about this? I think that you're starting to see certain teams, obviously Ghost Gaming, the Ghost Academy, Guild Esports with the Guild Academy, where they're almost creating these training camps, these youth camps, these essentially trying to make you better gamer kind of facilities. So I think that's already coming, but it's not necessarily, hey, we're signing you to our team as a player. You have to pay us. It's more, hey, we're paying you to treat you and to train you and to develop you and give you this opportunity. And who knows if you become a super duper star or whatever, we'll sign you. I don't think that's necessarily the goal. It's more about paying $100 a session, 10 sessions, here's your $1,000. You bring your child to the Team Liquid facility on Wednesdays at 3 o'clock and they're there for two hours and get pizza. Yeah, like that. that is, I think, the way to do it. And fan clubs and Liquid Plus and Stratus and some of these other organizations launching these kind of fan clubs to monetize and mobilize their true fans, right? This goes back to the record labels where there's always this theory in, especially in the indie world, of this thousand true fans. Where you have a thousand true fans that spend $100 a year, you're going to make $100,000 and like you can survive as an artist. And it's a combination of music and merch and ticket sales and all these different things. But if you get $100 from a thousand people, that's a baseline for success. So I think that is probably the way to do this. Okay. Because in my eyes, it seems like it would at least would be a product that's that yeah, what does is, it mean? You're not really on the Team Liquid starting roster just because you paid to be on it. Sure. But but that uh, this is what I go back to, to like the college days. Is I remember when a motherfucker was rushing for Sigma Pi or Omega Kappa or whatever. Like it, it becomes their identity in a way. And even though they're just a pledge or they're just whatever, they might decide to only do that for a year. Some people decide to go for all four. You become a president. 
things of that sort. It's more, I think it becomes a way to open up a net, like a big funnel in a way to an open audience of folks who are interested in being tied to you, to your organization. And then as time progresses, they either fall off somewhere in that funnel process or they get more involved into your organization, which may become more beneficial to you as they increase their relevance in uh, gaming and esports, as they become a content creator, as they learn new skills, et cetera. There, I think a lot of people who like gaming, who have been a gamer since young, are probably in some way interested in having a professional career in the world of esports and gaming. And that's not always very clear what that might look like and what capacity they might be able to get involved. And I'm not saying that an esports org doing this kind of fraternity-like program would be a path for that. I'm simply saying back to my original point, which is the alternative is backwards. It's I'm going to give you money for whatever, whereas me, the business who's trying to survive and operate, should have a product worth selling. What that product is, it's not very clear to me yet. I'm working on it. but. Like, I think that would at least be a start is flipping the table a little bit. And again, like removing that dependency on a publisher, because the day that Riot League or excuse me, that, that Riot Gaming decides, hey, like we are, we're good. We're not doing League of Legends no more because we're working on League of Legends too. like no competitions for three years. What are the top 10 teams going to do? Like all that revenue sharing option is gone. They're the merchandise that we're going to sell because they just signed a $10 million player. That's gone. There's got to be an alternative where it's not backwards. That's my thoughts there. It's something that, that emerged. I was having a conversation with my best friend over the weekend, and we talked about it, and it was like something I wanted to ask you. So, yeah, esports as a fraternity. Yeah, as a proud fraternity member myself, mm. I, don't necess- I don't know if it really, that was the reason why you paid dues. Dues were more like to, like, fun stuff if we're gonna do a brother's trip or we're gonna do whatever kind of event kind of stuff that was really more what the money was for it wasn't just to be like oh we're in that we, we're gonna pay money just to say we're in this no this money goes towards funding what we're gonna do the brother retreat the gifts that everybody gets from it the pledge shirts the pledge rush events the social events that we do that's what that money was for. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like exactly, right? It's, it's going towards something that becomes very attractive to you as the outsider. And you said, wow, that looks like it might be worth my while. And brands, brands are doing this. Because when you, if, if you have a lifestyle brand, for a lot of people that come up, like may, maybe in their early 20s and they're saying, all right, I'm going to start a business. The first thing that they do maybe is like launch an apparel brand. And what do they think? They say, okay, I'm going to put my logo on a t-shirt. Nice. Like now I am like, where's the money now? And what a lot of people fail to realize is people don't care about what the brand is. They care about what the brand stands for and, and what that lifestyle is. So back to your point about the dues that you were paying for the brother retreat, for a trip, for social experiences, et cetera. If that's what dues are being accumulated for, and then the brand, and on the, the example of an esports org fraternity, if the brand is saying, okay, what's the lifestyle that we want to sell to people or the image that we want to give to people such that we can get more interest from either new parties or affiliates of, of people that are already part of my program, 
who are already part of the fraternity, that becomes a much more interesting paradigm. And it's it's no longer, hey, just pay me money to be a part of this thing. It's more like, because you pay money to be a part of this thing, this is the list of things like that you get access to. I think it's to. kind of like almost the Soho House for gaming. If organ, Are you familiar with the Soho House? I am, yeah. So I feel like that would be a cool concept. Like, I'm like, where it's, yeah, like you pay a membership fee and you get to come to our facility and we do these mixers and it's like more of like they're conducting these social things. Again, the same way a record label will do a listening party or an album release party or a music video release party. It's again, they might have a sponsor that does the open bar. They might have a sponsor that gives out the gift bags and it might be something that the team start building. So you're starting to create this event production wing that's not just producing actual tournaments and competitive esports events you're just producing events where this is an extension so yeah i think it makes sense i think you started like we said some organizations are creating these fan clubs creating these academies creating these youth initiatives where they're maybe poking around what you're saying but i could see an org let's just say 100 thieves they could have maybe they have thursday nights at 100 thieves where there's a live performance and whatever but then there's members like, only. Oh, the, and then, exactly. Then there's a place that's members only within it. It's like an area you can only get to if you're a member. Exactly. And now, okay, now it's all I want to spend $100 a year or a month to be able to get to that. Because like you're saying, because you're getting something beyond what you can get, right? It's the Wait. whole selling bottles at a club thing. But you're not spending $300 because you want a bottle of Grey Use. You can get that for $25 to store you're getting it because you want the experience of having this area and the service and the sparklers and the attention and like that which comes with it. Not necessarily the vodka that you're drinking or the champagne or whatever. So it's, that is probably the evolution that it needs it becomes a more, you know, high priced item. But then again, it also is only for a segment of your population, right? There's only a certain amount of people that are going to do that. Right. I think that I'm not going to get 12 and 13 year olds doing that at that kind of age. Sure. So it, it, it's, that's why you almost have to have these different offerings depending on where you can have both. I don't think one stops the other. Maybe there was this 21 plus membership and there's an under 18 membership. And I don't know. I think like you said, people are starting to poke at it and dance around it. And it will be interesting if someone launches a Soho house for gaming led by an org and. It just becomes a place where Saturday nights at the 100 Thieves compound is. That's the place to be. Yeah. If you're in the industry or any industry, like you want to be there kind of thing. Yeah. I think that that speaks a lot more to the human. I don't know if I would call it the human condition or, or the nature of man, but things that but make yeah, us want to. It's the wanna... factor, right? Yeah. Like, like why did Fry Festival, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Why was that such a thing? Because everybody who mattered said go to it on in social media. So everyone was like, oh, go to it. I got to go. Cannot go. Hey, what is this thing? Yeah. Everyone that matters is talking about it. Yeah. And then they stole all the money and ran away, right? But Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Watch that documentary if you want to laugh. Oh, man. I actually haven't watched it, but I've, you're, you're like maybe it's the third one. or fourth person to, to recommend it. Yeah. That was interesting times for sure. Justin, I do have one final question because, and this is more something that I was personally interested in. I was listening to a conversation that you were on with Gamers Change Lives. I think it was the group. And you dove into immigration laws and how sometimes players are coming from outside of the country using a travel visa to come here and they compete, they win, and they can't take the money. 
And that can actually open up many more problems than initially thought, right? Now, a part of me resonates with them because it's like, they just want to be here to compete. Cool. Like, I think any human can sympathize with that. But there are laws. What do you think about a case where crypto gets involved? Or again, I'm going back to into Web3 where it, it doesn't matter where you're from, but more so that the fact that you are a human and I can verify that you're a human and you can come in and compete, that becomes the, the basis by which I run tournaments. Here in the United States, you mentioned even in that podcast that there's not a lot in North America. Like most global events don't happen here for good reason, because they're not visas or visitor passes or whatever are not long enough for to warrant individuals being here. They're also really not, expensive. It's very expensive. They're also not large enough of an athlete to get the, I think you said it was the O1 visa, not large enough to get that one applications for visas might take a long time. Even if you were expediting, it's 2,500 bucks. There's so much that's involved here. What do you think about a case where uh, crypto gets involved? And I'll, I'll read the segment to you. Worldwide competitors theoretically should be able to compete anywhere and earn an income from it. And this is something that, in my personal opinion, that I think Web3 could facilitate. Do you have any thoughts that you want to add here? I think that the thing about it is you have to if you're coming to the U.S. to compete, if you're just competing online from wherever you are, like, you don't, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about if you're coming into the States physically coming here. So I think, obviously, I can't really comment on immigration laws and the reason behind it, but the concept of visas is that we as a government want to limit the amount of non-U.S. citizens that are coming and taking potentially U.S. citizens' job. Where it's, okay, if, this non-U.S. citizen couldn't have been in the tournament and it's easier for a U.S. citizen, they're more likely to be. I know during COVID and as it started to lean up, I had some musician, musical artists that are here based in the U.S. where they got a ton more bookings because all the festivals couldn't really get the foreign DJs and artists that they used to get. They couldn't get the DJs from Amsterdam and Spain and Germany and some of these other foreign countries that might have headlined the show. So you had to go to the talent that was in state that, you know, was able to get to the festival and didn't have to worry about getting a visa because everything was delayed or booked in and there weren't really flights and you couldn't really come in without quarantining, right? There was all kinds of fly somewhere. You had a quarantine for 14 days. So it's like, it was just the logistical wasn't possible. So that's a similar thought process is that, okay, if there's 20 less foreign competitors, that means they need the 20 U.S. competitors. So it opens up new opportunities. If you're competing online, it's obviously different because you're online. You don't have to be physically there. But once you have to go somewhere and physically do it, that's where this stuff comes into play. I see. And it is problematic and it is costly. And as you see, there are a lot of issues with players not getting visas, not getting them in time, missing tournaments. And it's problematic. And it, it, like, as someone who's championing in this space, I believe that there probably needs to be legislation changes similar to what Germany has and that there has to be laws actually amended to permit and make it more easy for esports and competitive gamers to come. This might be a conversation that has to happen and we already see it elsewhere. And as a result, they're more inclined to have events there just because there's a specific category, specific criteria. If you hit boom, you get it. And 
like we're saying, putting esports into this bubble that's not really made for it and was really more drafted for music and sports and more traditional entertainment. Like it's easy for the, the immigration office to know what being playing in the NBA is or playing for the New York Knicks is. You're a foreign player, you get you're drafted by the Knicks. Now you're coming over to play for them. Like all good. Here's your visa. You have an NBA contract and there's articles that say you were drafted. Welcome to America. Yeah. You got enough evidence to to support you coming in. So no no problem. Esports is a little different in that way. Where a lot of people don't really know what it is, what it like, is to be signed are, to a hundred thieves. New leagues. Like it's well, I was doing visas for like PUBG players. Like when the PUBG league just started, it's like, what is PUBG to a random immigration officer? I don't know. Because we got them. You just have to get creative with it. And but sometimes you do have issues. And that was something that I encountered with some Fortnite pros where like they wanted to come here, but because they weren't signed to orgs, like they didn't fit into the criteria properly. There was no way to really structure their visa because they wouldn't satisfy this one key component. And it wasn't necessarily applicable to their situation and do what they do. But the law is the law, as you say. Like, we, we need the law to change or to be amended so that it fits better. Justin, I, I will say this. Like, I am no expert on law, but I know that you are. And ladies and gentlemen, if there is something that I can recommend, it is to check out Justin, check out his website, because he is indeed a wonderful resource and a wonderful individual to be connected with, especially for all things esports and entertainment. Justin, we have reached a segment of our show where I like to put the mic in the hands of my guests such that they can give a message, a shout out, some love, some advice, whatever feels right for you. But the, the mic is in your hands. I think my biggest advice to everyone is as Nike and your shirt, just do it. Whatever you want to do, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're talking about, just do it. I think the worst that happens is you do it and you fail and you learn. And two people are just too afraid to just do it. That's always my advice to everyone. And thank you so much for having me. And definitely check me out on Twitter, Justin J E S Q. My DMs are open, so I'm always happy to speak to anyone. And check my website, JMJESQ. As you mentioned, lots of different useful articles and information. And my email is there, so I'm happy to connect with anyone. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. It's been another banger of an episode. I will be sure to include all of the social links down in the description. Be sure to also give this page a follow. That's Quest XYZ, Q-U-E-Z-T XYZ on Twitter and all of the wonderful socials. You can check that below. Be sure to stay in touch with Justin. Shoot him a follow ASAP, maybe even a little DM and tell him that you saw him on this show. That way he can see that I am uh, semi-famous. Who knows? Justin, man, I cannot thank you enough. I was really excited for this one. And I I'm already beyond eager to just get it live and show people what we were talking about. It was a really great show with you. Awesome. All righty, my friends. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And as always, we'll see you on the flip side. Peace.